This yes. is hell. There you go. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. And is there any more of a bottomless pit than the cover-ups of atrocities committed by militaries and governments all over the world? Because that's what we are talking about today. Early on in the presidency of Donald Trump, his administration worked with military leaders to circumvent the U.S. Congress to declare war. In doing so, they launched what, for all intents and purposes, was a war in Somalia. The war was being conducted in a way that did not employ any checks or balances that had been used in an attempt to limit civilian deaths during the Obama administration. Now an investigation has shown... That not only was a woman and her child killed after escaping the original drone attack on the vehicle within which they were traveling, but some five years after the events came to light, the U.S. has done nothing to compensate the victims' families for their loss. In a few minutes, we will have the return of writer, author, and journalist Nick Terse in uh, in the very so in the very first days of the. Uh, Trump administration, the president launched an off-the-books war in Somalia, the results of which are only now coming to light. And so Nick, Nick is going to be on the show to discuss his new investigation at The Intercept. Secret Pentagon investigation found no one at fault in drone strike that killed Somali woman and her four-year-old. U.S. military has neither compensated nor apologized to relatives of the woman and child that it acknowledges killing in 2018. It's a story that was supported by the Pulitzer Center. And you might remember Nick being on the show most recently back in June when we spoke with him about another investigative journalism piece of his, Kissinger's Killing Fields, interviews with more than 75 witnesses and survivors of U.S. military attacks and an exclusive archive of documents show that Henry Kissinger's is responsible for even more civilian deaths in Cambodia than was previously known. At least... That's what we thought we were going to be doing today, but we have some breaking news. Nick's story has been delayed, embargoed for a little bit longer, and we are not going to have Nick on today's show because we wouldn't be able to share that interview uh, with you. So we have, just before airtime, rescheduled Nick for Monday, November 13th. I believe that's when we will have him on the show to discuss that investigative piece which we wouldn't be able to share with you anyway until then because the story has been embargoed. That means delayed until publication uh, until Sunday, November 12th. And so the following day, we will be talking to Nick on Monday, November 13th. So make sure you tune in for that. Producing is Will Ippen. Will, how are you? How's your week going so far? I'm feeling tremulous, Chuck. <laughs> so tremulous, let me get that word up again. Tremulous means, again, uh, what does it say here? Shaking or quivering slightly. Today's headline in the New York Times. Hundreds escape tremulous Gaza at Egypt border. I don't know if I'd use the word tremulous because A, most people don't know what the word tremulous means. And apparently, B, I don't think the headline writer knows what it means because I don't think Gaza is quivering slightly right now. I think it's burning to the ground. I'm pretty sure that's what's going on yeah, right I'm now. pretty sure it's burning and quaking. <laughs> so for me, this is one of those weeks when I question the choices I've made specifically to do a show called This Is Hell, a radio show podcast live stream that focuses on the news that gives you fits in print but seem to never actually make it into print, at least not here in the United States. 
the establishment here in the United States is so thick with propaganda, establishment media that is, is so thick with propaganda and celebrity distractions that do not deserve the massive attention given by the corporate media. While places like the New York Times report on Israel using precision weapons lead to headlines like a front page story earlier this week, fatal strike in dense area as Israelis aim at Hamas. But as anthropologist Sophia Goodfriend, a researcher of surveillance and digital rights in Israel and Palestine, explained earlier this week, such precision warfare simply does not exist for many reasons, mostly because even with what are considered smart weapons, those employing them have to be smart themselves, being careful and cautious in their targeting. But as Sophia told us, and we can see with our own eyes, that is not what's happening in Gaza. If the Times did not want to be misleading, that headline, Fatal Strike in Dense Area as Israelis Aim at Hamas, would have read, Bombing instead of Fatal Strike, which implies a precision attack, Refugee Camp instead of Dense Area, Israel instead of Israelis, which implies that the, all of the people are behind it, Kill instead of Aim, which negates any deaths that occurred, Palestinians or refugees instead of Hamas, as again, there's the implication that the IDF was precise in their attacks, only killing Hamas terrorists despite innocent women and children killed, likely far outnumbering the number of Hamas members who died. With reports of children carrying injured children from the wreckage, the Times seems to be saying children are legitimate targets as they are probably terrorists too. In other words, instead of fatal strike in dense area as Israel as, as Israelis aim at Hamas, that New York Times headline should have read, Bombing of refugee camp by Israel kills hundreds. Here in Chicago, WGN-TV reported the bombing of the refugee camp as, and I'm not kidding you, a victory over Hamas for Israel. And there was yesterday's conversation with Guardian columnist George Monbiot on the coming food crisis that, like the 2008 banking crisis, is caused by a concentration of corporate power and control over our food supply. As George said, you can bail out banks with money through quantitative easing, but the U.S. government does not have the ability to bail out failing food systems with food. George said that is one of the biggest stories of our time, the financial crisis repeating itself, but this time it will be a food crisis. Yet again, as the media ignored the pending doom many economists were warning us about here on This Is Hell for five years before the housing bubble burst, they are again in denial. The media is again in denial about the dangers of corporate conglomeration, centralization, concentration, and control because the corporations involved are again advertisers, if not significant partners or investors in the establishment news media. Then today, we were scheduled to again be discussing something that the corporate U.S. media, both public and private, refuses to cover. And keep in mind, those media outlets have tens, if not hundreds of millions, if not altogether billions in resources, and our show actually loses money every year. I've never made a living wage doing the show, yet we are reporting far more important news in a far more honest way than what is available elsewhere. Meritocracy in the United States is a myth, and those in the press who are rewarded are those who do their corporate master's bidding. This week, U.S. media outlets decided that more important than precision weaponry not existing in practice, more important than our pending food crisis, which could lead to a global famine, 
More important than the Trump administration, U.S. military circumventing Congress to launch a war against Somalians and then cover it up. More important than any of that, pushing all of that off the front pages and from being a top story on the nightly news is the death of a member of the cast of Friends. By the way, I do not begrudge anyone for being a fan of Friends and it being a big part of your life when it was on. However, please, please reconsider how you feel about that show by searching online for Friends Without Laugh Track. Without the prompts to laugh, that show is really, really depressing, like a soap opera about five self-absorbed, soulless, wealthy people wallowing in white privilege who don't give a damn about what is happening in the world around them. Which, now that I think of it, it makes perfect sense the media has spent so much time on the death of a cast member of Friends. It's also full of self-absorbed, soulless, wealthy people wallowing in white privilege who don't give a damn about what is happening in the world around them. So, if you want to piss off the multi-billion dollar establishment corporate media industry and their news outlets and upset a lot of podcasters who have a lot of money behind them, either from their parents or influencers who are secretly paid by corporate advertisers, vote for This Is Hell in the Chicago Reader Best of 2023 Reader's Poll at chicagoreader.com best under the City Life category where you can vote for This Is Hell as Best Podcast and me, Chuck Mertz, as Best Radio DJ. That's chicagoreader.com best. Then go to City Life, vote for This Is Hell as Best Podcast, then vote for your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, live streaming host, podcast host, Chuck Mertz as best radio DJ. We may not be the kind uh, of show that seeks out recognition, celebrity, or fame. In fact, we shun all three. But we are the kind of show that loves to troll the media, special, especially uh, local media. Voting is only open until November 7th, so vote early. Vote often for This Is Hell, Chuck Mertz. And why not vote for Carrie's Lounge at chicagoreader.com slash best. And we'll tell you a little bit more about that later. So the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, as always, they win their choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise they want. You can see all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Or in our Facebook group, Welcome to the Hellhole. Or you can tweet it at us at This Is Hell Radio. You can share it at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash thisishell, or in our Discord community. Or just email it to us at thisishellradio at gmail.com. But we must have your answer now because we are now going to be reading the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. Will, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and share the rest of our listeners' answers to this week's question. This week's question from hell is... Why are you so tremulous? So tremulous. <laughs> uh, uh, this question has me tremulous. Um, we got to turn up the heat in here. That's why I think yeah, I'm tremulous. We, right? Uh, now we've said the word too many times, so it's just its constituent sounds. Um, this week's it's no question. longer a callback. It's just annoying. It's at this just annoying. It's a sound. Uh, kind of rolls off the tongue, though. It does. This week's question from hell is, why are you joining Truth Social? Why are you 
joining Truth Social. So what are the answers that we still have yet to read on the show? Hmm. Well, let me, have we done the hellhole yet? Uh, we did the hellhole, I think. Let me let me check. Hold a second. Okay. I got those right here. Uh, da, 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 da. Yes, we did. Welcome to hellhole. Uh, we did Patreon. All right, so we got Twitter and Discord. Yeah, and newest. Facebook. Yeah. All right. And just regular Facebook. Cool. So over on Discord, we'll do them first today. Okay. Um, Kim G, just doing my own research. <laughs> Strong response as always, Kim. Ah, uh, it's the Pete Townsend alibi. Exactly. Just doing my own research. That's right. And Aaron Rodgers. Yes. Uh, goof- <laughs> yes, that's a good point. <laughs> uh, Goofus Magoofus. That's a great name. Uh, to get it straight from the horse's ass, I mean mouth, the horse's mouth. <laughs> that's a good one. That's good. Uh, and then rounding out things on Discord is Cam, who replies, Where else am I going to get next year's Newsday from all the best oracles, fortune tellers, prophets, and seers? Oh, wait, you said Truth Social? I thought it was Soothe Social. Yeah, the network for soothsayers and assorted acolytes. Wow, that was quite a reach. <laughs> it was. Quite a reach, but I think it worked. For, yeah, sure. I think we threaded the needle. Sure. Maybe. Yeah. And uh, Twitter and then regular Facebook. All right, there's one on Twitter. I think there it was it Rock Taster, wasn't it? Yeah, it was... Uh, uh, Petre G yeah. says, I'll follow Joe Biden into the breach. He's so inspiring. <laughs> That's funny, but I don't think it's related I, to the question from hell. Yeah. I mean, well, it's because Joe Biden joined Truth Social. He did? Control it. Yeah. Yeah. I had no said, idea. Converts welcome. Yeah. Oh. Whoever was on his team did well on that. Well, one, look I at think. that. So, uh, Petres was, uh, more yeah. on, on spot on than I thought he was. Yep. And Facebook? Let's see. Over on regular Facebook. Regular old regular Facebook old page. Facebook.com slash Facebook. This Is Hell Radio. Yes. <laughs> Completely throttled. <laughs> Facebook. Um, sorry. Uh, it's buried in here. Um, Uh, so Ugh. that's what you got to do when you're vamping because somebody canceled right before the show started. I know, started. sorry guys, I usually have a little say. more time to pull these up. Like a whole interview to pull these up. <laughs> exactly. Like a 45 minute interview to figure out where all these things are. Instead, we're just it's doing it here we live post on air. so damn much. Do you know live, uh, live radio is better and bumper stickers should be issued? <laughs> I wholeheartedly agree. <laughs> all right, found it. Thank God. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> that was painful. <laughs> All right. How are they responding on they Facebook? They are responding. We have eight responses. Uh, got to make sure I'm seeing them all. Okay. Sam A replies to the question, why are you joining Truth Social? Uh, Sam A replies, Gaza. <laughs> <laughs> I love the one word answers. I do too. That one's good. <laughs> yeah. That one's a good one. Uh, Ray O. Replies, am I? <laughs> Exclamation point, question mark. Damn straight you are, Ray. Uh, Lisa B. Replies, because I don't spend enough time screaming. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. That's good, Lisa. Uh, Fabio 
replies, because I hate my phone. <laughs> also very good. Uh, John T. replies, because if you say something mainstream about COVID, like get a shot, Facebook will still be in your face. <laughs> Isel S. replies, to help this is hell attract those far-right trolls Chuck wishes to make fun of. <laughs> hey, a callback to a past question from hell. Exactly. Doug M. replies... Couldn't get an invite to Lies Antisocial. <laughs> and Neil C. To get the real fake news. <laughs> okay, so the answers I like the most were on Patreon, Mason W. saying, I keep striking out on Tinder. Which is really good. Why are you joining Truth Social? Essential says for the presidential amphetamine recipe. (laughs) Nick E says to lurk, laugh, and cry. Kim G says just doing my own research, which I really like. Lisa B's because I don't spend enough time screaming. (laughs) SLS to help this is hell attract those far right trolls Chuck wishes to make fun of. Neil C saying to get the real fake news. Fabio was great because I hate my phone. Sam A's answer, Gaza. That's really good. Jen on Welcome to the Hellhole saying, to tell you the truth, I'm not that social anymore. Why are you choosing? Why are you joining Truth Social? Marco G says, I'm jo- joining for entertainment purposes. And that reminds me on uh, Pinball Machines, there used to be a little sticker that used to say, for entertainment purposes only. And so I finally asked somebody, I was like, what, that's, what's that all about? And they said, because pinball was like a real big gambling thing when it just came out. No People way. would be gambling all the time on their games. So like on the parlay cards I used to get from the bookie as a kid, it would say on the back of those betting slips, it would say, for news and information purposes only. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> I want to gamble on pinball. I know, right? That sounds like fun. Uh, so also... Uh, Aaron D. saying uh, that he is joining Truth Social for a little antisocial untruth. Wojciech saying for because of intense self-loathing. Tom G. saying, I for one welcome our unwoke, mindless antivirus overlords. <laughs> and David R. saying because I'm a nihilist. Do any of those really <laughs> jump out to you there, Will? There's a couple. It's a strong. It's a really group. strong field this week. I really, you know, Lisa stands out to me because I can just picture. I don't know. Someone's screaming, screaming the whole time they're on their phone. Uh, <laughs> it's like, pretty good. Like Gaza. Gaza's good, and uh, that's timely. I like. Yeah, I was striking out on Tinder. <laughs> that's really um, good too. Uh, yeah. But Mason won recently. But that's really good because I'm yeah. striking out on Tinder. Gaza is really good. Let's go with Mason. All right. Uh, the winner to this week's question from hell. Again, this week's question from hell is, why are you joining Truth Social? Mason W. said, because I keep striking out on Tinder. <laughs> so, Mason, you are this week's winner. Congratulations. Just tell us what piece of This Is Hell swag you want. We'll be contacting you through Patreon to tell you that you won. And, uh, you know, tell us, send us your mailing address, and we'll put that piece of merchandise in the mail as soon as we possibly can. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, to find all of our merchandise, as always, you can just go to thisishell.com and click on support. My answer to this week's question from hell, why are you joining Truth Social? Look, I was drunk. 
I didn't know what I was doing. The sun was in my eyes. It, it wasn't me. Somebody stole my identity. It was a virus. Maybe it was malware. I didn't have enough money to, for a cab fare. My tux didn't come back from the cleaners. An old friend came in from out of town. Someone stole my car. There was an earthquake, a terrible flood. Locust, it wasn't my fault, I swear to God. Thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to this week's question from hell. And congratulations to anybody who got that Blues Brothers reference. Hello, listeners. Will Ippen here, producer on This Is Hell. Uh, as you heard Chuck mention in the first part of the episode, uh, our scheduled guest for today, uh, Nick Terse, has been rescheduled for a couple of weeks because his uh, article is currently under embargo. That article covers uh, U.S. drone strikes in Somalia and the civilian deaths it caused. As we await publication of that article, we also await uh, rescheduling with Nick. We very much look forward to him returning to This Is Hell to discuss this very uh, serious and important and no doubt sort of buried story. Uh, We'll let you know when that interview is rescheduled once we know. Nonetheless, we have a very timely interview for you given the ongoing slaughter in Israel and Palestine. This interview comes to us from our archives. This February 21st, 2015 interview with Middle East scholar Norman Finkelstein explores the mechanisms of Israeli occupation and the internal politics that sustain the country's periodic massacres in Palestine. He was discussing his then new book, Method and Madness, the hidden history, or sorry, the hidden story of Israel's assaults on Gaza. After the interview, stay tuned for updates on what you've been missing on Patreon. Without further delay, dear listeners, here's the interview with Norman Finkelstein. This is hell. Norman Finkelstein is author of Method and Madness, the hidden story of Israel's assaults on Gaza. Norman teaches at Sakarya University's Center for Middle Eastern Studies in Turkey. Good morning, Norman. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you back on the show, sir. We had you on several years ago, and it was such an enjoyable interview, and I was so glad that you had it transcribed and posted at your website, so I truly appreciate that. And the reason that I wanted to have you on the show is, you know, it, this you're absolutely right. It just looks like madness, the way that the Israeli military attacks Gaza, but as you point out, there is a method to it. Before we get to that, I have to ask you something about a breaking story here at Northwestern University uh, and around the world, kind of. The This week, Northwestern University students uh, voted to join the BDS campaign, boycott, divest, and sanctions against Israel's occupation of Palestinian land. It was also reported this week that APAC was trying to get language put into the Trans-Pacific Partnership that would make the BDS campaign illegal. How much does the BDS campaign mean for Palestinians? And if it was illegal, how much would that hurt the solidarity movement with the Palestinians? Uh, There's no question that these are uh, positive developments, and uh, the people who have campaigned uh, deserve a large amount of credit for keeping the Palestine cause alive uh, 
and for demonstrating real organizing skills. Um, um, I would register just a couple of reservations on how you characterize these events. Uh, but bear in mind the reservations are within the larger context of these being important victories and uh, impressive victories. Uh, the first reservation I would register is uh, I do not consider these uh, BDS victories. BDS has a very specific political platform. It calls for an end to the occupation, equal rights for Palestinians within Israel, and uh, implementation of what's called the right of return, that is, the right of refugees who were ex Palestinians who were expelled in 1948 and 1967, the right to return, as well as succeeding generations of Palestinian refugees. Um, the uh, victories to which you refer at Northwestern, and there was also a series in uh, California, uh, the these BD, what you call BDS victories uh, are very specifically targeted uh, to Israeli human rights violations in the occupied Palestinian territories. Um, they don't speak to a large number of issues uh, which are included in the BDS platform. Uh, and all of these victories are always within the context of recognizing Israel as a state. Uh, which BDS refuses to do. So I would characterize these as victories for uh, opposing um, Israeli violations of international law, uh, in particular Israel's illegal, at this point, illegal occupation of the Palestinian territories. But I wouldn't characterize them as BDS victories insofar as they do not uh, endorse the BDS platform. So is uh, is I'm sorry is the BDS campaign then is do you think it's more about creating solidarity it's more about something about politics here within the United States and the campaigners themselves than it is about having a direct impact on the ground within Israel or the Palestinian territories Well uh for the Palestinian struggle to succeed it clearly is going to need international support if Palestinians are, if Israel's left alone to do as it pleases, uh, the imbalance in uh, sheer physical um, uh, power is uh, such that the Palestinians couldn't possibly succeed. So the solidarity movement is a critical part of um, any possible positive outcome to the conflict. On the other hand, we have to be realistic about these things. Uh, just as in the American South or in South Africa or anywhere else for that matter, uh, the prime mover of any struggle has to be the people themselves. A solidarity movement can uh, can um, play a critical role, but it's always going to be a secondary role. Uh, the uh, primary role has to be played by the Palestinians themselves. And so far, uh, Palestinians haven't yet shown the kinds of uh, organization and uh, commitment required to end the occupation. 
All right, so let's get to your book, Norman. Again, the name of your book, Method and Madness, The Hidden Story of Israel's Assaults on Gaza. Gaza has experienced three invasions by Israel since 2008 that have killed a total of approximately 3,700 Palestinians, while 90 Israelis have died. After the 2008-2009 Operation Cast Lead invasion, Israel's then Foreign Minister Tzipi Livni said, is, quote, Israel demonstrated real hooliganism during the course of the recent operation, which I demanded. Why does Israel want to give the impression that their operations against Gaza are by, nef- by definition of hooliganism, uh, rowdy, violent, disruptive, destructive, or unlawful behavior such as rioting, bullying, and vandalism? Well, when Tzipi Livni made that remark, which was in 2009, shortly after Israel's operation cast lead, actually she said it the night after cast lead uh, ended, I think it was January 18th, if my memory is correct. Uh, At that point, Israel was still experiencing a large amount of diplomatic and legal immunity for its crimes. And so there was a certain amount of bravado, one might say brazenness, in the ways Israel publicly acknowledged uh, the kinds of brutality it was inflicting on the people of Gaza. But Operation Cast Lead was a kind of turning point uh, because international outrage had reached a threshold such that Uh, A lot of international public opinion simply wasn't willing to tolerate Israel's periodic massacres. And the climax of that um, intolerance uh, was the Goldstone Report, uh, headed by, uh, it was a report issued by the Human Rights Council in the UN, uh, and headed by a distinguished South African Jewish jurist, Richard Goldstone. Uh, And at that point, it became clear to Israel that it was uh, now in uh, new new territory uh, where it couldn't carry on with the kind of brazenness that hitherto characterized it. Now, as it happened, uh, Israel was able to squelch the Goldstone Report, and it carried out uh, two more massacres, one in November 2012 and then this past summer. Uh, There were some differences, however. Uh, One noticeable difference was that the kinds of statements that Israel made uh, during and after cast lead, it didn't carry on that way during Operation Protective Edge this past summer. They were much more cautious in what they were saying publicly because they realized that this time around they were going to be held uh, uh, politically and perhaps legally accountable for their actions. You mentioned the Goldstone Report. Uh, You write, the Goldstone Report found that much of the death and destruction Israel inflicted on Gaza's civilian population and infrastructure was premeditated. The assault was said to be anchored in a military doctrine that, quote, views disproportionate destruction and creating maximum disruption in the lives of many people as a legitimate means to achieve military and political goals and was designed 
to have inevitably dire consequences on the non-combatants in Gaza. The disproportionate destruction and violence against hum- uh, civilians were part of a deliberate policy, as were the humiliation and dehumanization of the Palestinian population. These are all quotes from the Goldstone Report itself. Although Israel justified its assault on grounds of self-defense against Hamas rocket attacks, the Goldstone Report pointed to a different motive. But in 2010, as you point out in your book, Goldstone then takes back his finding, writing in the Washington Post, the allegations of intentionality by Israel were based on the deaths of and injuries to civilians in situations where our fact-finding mission had no evidence on which to draw any other reasonable conclusion. While the investigations published by the Israeli military and uh, recognized in the UN committee's report have established the validity of some incidents that we investigated in cases involving individual so- soldiers. They also indicate that civilians were not intentionally targeted as a matter of policy. Israel's lack of cooperation with our investigation meant that we were not able to corroborate how many Gazans, uh, Gazans killed were civilians and how many were combatants. So how much weight then does the Goldstone report still have? And in your opinion, why did Goldstone backtrack? Uh, the report has no weight whatsoever anymore. It's a historical document. It's a, it was a um, a uh, link in a chain of events uh, that began with Operation uh, Cast Lead, uh, and it proved to be a weak link. And uh, the the Goldstone report was effectively um, nullified or neutered. I think is the right word. Uh, I can't prove these things, but my guess is uh, the Israeli intelligence agencies got some uh, dirty information on Goldstone or a member of his family, uh, and he was blackmailed into um, writings at Washington Post op-ed. There's circumstantial evidence, which I go through in my analysis to support my speculation, but as the distinguished uh, South African jurist uh, John Dugard, who is a colleague of Goldstone's, he said that it's probably a secret that will go uh, with Goldstone to his grave. Uh, one thing, however, we can say for certain, uh, Goldstone's pretext for his retraction was that new information became available since he wrote the report that contradic- contradicted uh, his findings, uh, that's flat-out false. I go through all the alleged new information. Uh, there was no new information that contradicted his original findings. Uh, so we can say with certainty that his pretext was flat out, uh, a flat-out lie. And then you quote Goldstone saying, I'm not recanting my original report, which I still stand uh, stand by. You write, he must have known exactly how his words would be spun. And it is this fallout, not his parsed words, that we must now confront. Goldstone has done terrible damage to the cause of truth and justice and the rule of law. He has poisoned Jewish-Palestinian relations, undermined the courageous work of Israeli dissenters, and most unforgivably, increased the risk of another merciless IDF assault. There has been such speculation on why uh, Goldstone recanted. Was he blackmailed? Did he finally succumb to the relentless hate campaign directed against him? Did he decide to put his tribe ahead of truth? What can be said will, uh, with certainty is that the Goldstone uh, that Goldstone did not reverse himself on account of newly unearthed information. So did this report in the end, did it do more harm or good in protecting civilian lives? Um, well, I think it set a, a useful precedent. Um, 
but it didn't fulfill its promise. Uh, as I said, even though Israel carried on even more crazed and um, <clears throat> depraved manner during Operation Protective Edge this past summer, uh, it was on a quantitatively uh, higher scale of death and destruction. In the case of Gaza, and during Operation Cast Lead in 2008-9, there were about 1,400 Palestinians killed, of whom about 1,200 were civilians. Um, in Operation Protective Edge this past summer, there were about 2,200 Palestinians killed, including 520 children, and about 1,500 or more uh, were civilians. So it was quantitatively a higher uh, level of death and destruction. The destruction was more severe at this, at this last round than in 2008-9. Um, so you can't say it did much in the way of limiting uh, the uh, magnitude of Israeli insanity, madness. Uh, but there were, as I said, some changes. Uh, I'm not saying they're positive or negative, they're just f factual matters. Uh, this time around, Israel is much more cautious and less brazen in its public acknowledgement of its uh, lunatic policies. Uh, so a lot of people say that the Goldstone report should be dismissed or that the allegations inside of the report weren't true. How do you think, instead of that it wasn't true, how do you think that the Goldstone report fell short in telling people about the horrors that were happening within uh, the Gaza invasion? No, I think the report was pretty good. I was one of the first people to say that this is a surprisingly good report. Uh, there are things that I remember back then. I analyzed it very closely in a previous book. Uh, this time we went too far. Um, Truth and Consequences of the Gaza Invasion. I analyzed the report quite closely, and there were some things I remember having prob uh, reservations about, but in general it was a very good report. Uh, the problem was the fulfillment. Uh, it threatened the possibility of... Uh, war crimes and crimes against humanity pro uh, prosecutions uh, against Israel in particular, some things against Hamas, but pretty, in my opinion, pretty trivial. But uh, certainly Israel uh, was facing the prospect, the dire prospect, that it was going to be held legally accountable for its criminal policies. Uh, that never happened. What's amazing is Israeli leaders bragged about doing exactly what Goldstone said they had done, indiscriminate punishment of a civilian population. You write Israeli leaders themselves did not shy away from acknowledging the indiscriminate, disproportionate nature of the attack they launched. Uh, they, that they launched as the invasion wound down. Again, here you quote Foreign Minister Zippy Livni declared that it had restored Israel's deterrence. Hamas now understands that when you fire on Israel's citizens, it responds by going wild. And this is a good thing. The day after the ceasefire, Livni bragged on Israeli television. Israel demonstrated real hooliganism. A former Israeli defense official told the crisis group that, quote, with an armada of fighter planes attacking Gaza, Israel decided to play the role of a mad dog for the sake of future deterrence, while a former senior Israeli security official boasted to the crisis group that Israel had regained its deterrence because it has, quote, has shown Hamas, Iran, and the region that it can be as lunatic 
as any of them. Did Israeli media, did U.S. media notice this contradiction? Because I know that the U.S. media is hardly as critical of Israeli state policies as the Israeli media is at times. No, first of all, that uh, last statement is largely a misnomer. Uh, the problem is most people get their uh, insight into the Israeli media from Haaretz newspaper. Um, the Haaretz newspaper is a liberal um, a, liter- a liberal outpost in Israeli uh, media, and it's not at all representative of Israeli opinion, broad public opinion, or for that matter, uh, media uh, coverage. Uh, Israeli media, as there have been many studies done, marches lockstep with the government, uh, tolerates very little dissent, uh, and presents a picture of uh, Israel to its population, pretty much what you would expect in North Korea. Um, So I don't think it's correct to say that uh, Israeli media is more open than the American media. At one point, that might have been true, uh, because the American media was like, uh, Pravda and Izvestia during the era of Stalin, and uh, Israeli society was more to the left. Uh, but now Israeli society has moved as a whole, as a whole, has moved radically to the right. There might be like 20% outpost of what you might call, uh, 20% margin of what you might call liberal opinion, but that's really about it. Israel's a crazy state now. Uh, its population is lunatic, and that's why it keeps re-electing this lunatic as its prime minister. The prime minister is uh, perfectly a perfect reflection of Israeli society. When Israelis see um, Benjamin Netanyahu, they see themselves uh, a loudmouth, obnoxious, arrogant, self-righteous, Jewish supremacist uh, uh, leader, reflecting a loudmouth, obnoxious, self-righteous, arrogant, Jewish supremacist uh, population. They, they vote for him not so much for his politics, um, because uh, there's very little difference between the main political parties in Israel, and not unlike the U.S., on fundamental issues. Uh, they vote for him because they see themselves in him. You know, I was just about to ask you that, about uh, if there was much discrepancy between the different leading political parties, because an election is coming up next month. So I guess my my bigger question is, how could policy towards the Palestinians change if Benjamin Netanyahu is not reelected? Uh, nothing substantial will change. There will be, uh, if a new government comes to power, it's not going to uh, end the conflict on terms which are reasonable for the Palestinians. Um, we already know what their terms are. They want to annex the what's called the major settlement blocks, which means annexing critical Palestinian resources, including land and water, uh, and fragmenting the West Bank into um, you might call them Indian reservations. Uh, and also uh, nullifying the right of return of Palestinian refugees. Uh, that's the position of the so-called liberal opposition. Um, so it offers nothing to the Palestinians, and uh, there's no hope that anything the Palestinians will be able to extract anything uh, minimally acceptable 
through uh, an electoral change in Israel. We are speaking with Norman Finkelstein. He is author of Method and Madness, the hidden story of Israel's assaults on Gaza. Norman teaches at Sakarya University Center for Middle Eastern Studies in Turkey. Does the Israeli packaging, or like what Sippy Livni said about Israel demonstrated real hooliganism, does this packaging or marketing of the invasions as crazy as insane, does it work? Does it keep Gazans, Palestinians everywhere, Israelis in the West from seeing what you perceive as their real motives um i think this this last round coming after two other assaults and the face of an illegal immoral and inhuman <clears throat> siege of gaza uh this last round seems to have really knocked the wind uh out of the people of gaza and their fighting spirit their willingness to resist uh i think has been significantly uh, undermined by the last Israeli assault. Uh, so at some at some level, yes, I would say the Israeli strategy of um, its blitzkrieg strategy of pulverizing Gaza, over uh, combined with the siege uh, of Gaza, uh, has been having certain amount of success. You write, Israel has repeatedly manufactured pretexts to achieve larger political objectives. Invariably, it resorted to military action against Hamas in order to provoke a violent response. Israel then exploited Hamas's retaliation to launch a series of murderous assaults on Gaza. We always hear, don't politicize the war here in the States and the media, and it really drives me crazy. Or politics gets in the way of the military. But But here you seem to be saying Israel's war on Gaza is a thoroughly politicized war that it is about politics. Why do you believe this is about politics and not security? Because the way in which any violence between Gaza and Israel is covered here in the U.S. is very balanced, as in both sides are equally at fault. Both sides can point to events that cause the current violence with footage of Israeli civilians running to bomb shelters and, well, little to no uh, footage of what's happening in Gaza, which doesn't have bomb shelters. So why do you believe this is about politics, not security? Well, all you have to do is look at the historic records. So let's take the case of the last three Israeli assaults on Gaza. Uh, in June 2008, uh, Israel signed a ceasefire with the Palestinians uh, in Gaza, primarily Hamas. And um, as uh, Israeli terrorism center itself wrote, quote, Hamas was careful to maintain the ceasefire uh, the ceasefire was broken by Israel uh, on November 4th, which was election day in the United States when Obama was uh, fated to become the first African-American president. All the cameras were on the U.S. election, and then Israel broke the ceasefire. Uh, so it was Israel that instigated the first of the three rounds in um, 2008-9. In the case of the second round Operation Pillar of Defense in November 2012, um, the ceasefire was uh, between Israel and Hamas was broken when Israel um, assassinated a leading Hamas official who, ironically enough, was responsible for the ceasefires negotiated with Israel and was in the process of negotiating another ceasefire when Israel assassinated him. Uh, in the case of 2014, 
uh, Israel began its assault on Hamas after Hamas and the Palestinian Authority formed the national consensus government, and the national consensus government upheld the terms for negotiations with Israel, uh, or reiterated the terms for negotiations with uh, for negotiations with the what's called the um, uh, quartet, namely the Soviet, the, uh, uh, Russia, the United States, the European Union, and the United Nations. Um, and the terms were recognition of Israel, renunciation of violence, and um, respecting past agreements. Uh, now, the new national consensus government, including Hamas, uh, reiterated its support for those terms of negotiations. And it was at that point that the Prime Minister Netanyahu exploited the opportunity offered by the kidnapping of three Israeli teenagers uh, to launch in July, excuse me, to launch in June, Operation Brothers Keeper, which targeted Hamas, even though there was no evidence that the Hamas leadership had anything to do with the kidnapping. And even though Netanyahu knew from the get-go that the kids were killed, the three Israeli uh, teenagers were killed, uh, Almost immediately after they were kidnapped, uh, still he launched this operation, killed Palestinians, blew up Palestinian homes, arrested 500 Palestinians in the West Bank, mostly Hamas members. Uh, and the purpose was clearly designed to evoke a, uh, <clears throat> a violent reaction from Hamas uh, in order to give Israel a new pretext for attacking Hamas. Yeah, this is the most frightening part of your book. It seems like the uh, the more you work towards peace, then that's going to mean in the very near future war. So is fighting, or I shouldn't say fighting, is working on, is, is the process of Gazans and Palestinians working on peace with the Israelis, is that bad for their security? Uh, it depends on what you mean by their security. Uh, Israel's security is uh, at a very high level at this point. Oh, and I, meant, I meant for the Palestinian security. If if they if them pursuing peace is bad for Palestinian security. Uh, okay. If who pursuing peace? Uh, the Palestinians, because I'm just. Afraid. It seems like every time that you in your book, every time that there is an, it, it seems to be steps closer and closer to peace, or some sort of negotiations, or some sort of talks. That's when the Israeli defense forces attack. So it would seem, yeah. it would seem, you know, hey, why pursue peace if you're going to be attacked by Israel? Well, I don't think it's a wise strategy. Um, number one, to engage in diplomacy with Israel, because I think that's a dead end. But I also think that um, the Hamas armed resistance is also a dead end. I think the only thing that can work is mass nonviolent resistance uh, in the, uh, uh, and completely, uh, for the moment, completely setting aside uh, any hope of gaining anything at the negotiating table, because uh, that's not really in the cards right now. Uh, at some point, yes, you want to turn. Uh, resistance into diplomacy, but unless you've won something, so to speak, on the battlefield, you're not going to get anything uh, in the negotiating room. Uh, so right now, I think uh, 
it's pointless to pursue any uh, negotiations or demonstrate any quote-unquote reasonableness to the Israelis because uh, the Israelis want to preserve the status quo and a status quo which is good for them. Uh, and anything which uh, jeopardizes or threatens that status quo, uh, they're going to try to squelch. You, uh, you know, obviously condone mass nonviolent resistance, and I think that is very, very admirable. And I think that the nonviolence resistance that uh, Gazans, the Palestinians were involved in in the past uh, was fantastic. But the problem with that is, is that here in the U.S., nonviolent resistance doesn't get that much play in the media. So that leads to two questions for me. Uh, two questions, Norman. One is, um, well, I guess it's just one question. How important is U.S. media, is the U.S. media coverage of the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians, how important is that to moving towards peace in the Middle East? Because if here in the United States, we're not telling people that Palestinians are involved in nonviolent resistance and then only report on any kind of violence that Palestinians are involved in. That's going to, how, to what degree is that going to undermine that nonviolent movement? Or, or am I just overestimating the importance and impact of U.S. and the U.S. media? why I said earlier, I don't think the Palestinians on their own can achieve uh, any significant political results. They have to be the prime mover. Uh, But having said that, it's incredible the Solidarity Movement internationally has a critical role to play. uh, And it really has to, at some point, coordinate and synchronize with the Palestinians such that if they do undertake or initiate major a major nonviolent uh, resistance uh, that will be here in the uh, will be here in the uh, in the um, uh, west uh, will be here to publicize what they're doing to clarify what the issues are to explaining to a broad audience why the goals set by this nonviolent resistance are legitimate uh, and indeed legal under international law, why Israel's occupation is illegitimate and illegal, uh, why justice is on the side of the Palestinians and injustice on the side of Israel. Uh, We have to do our job. Uh, It's a big job, but I don't think it's an insurmountable one. Um, There is a formidable... Solidarity movement in the West, uh, which if it organized and gave its all, and I think it can organize and has quite a lot of all to give. Uh, if you get everything right, uh, I think it's quite possible you can uh, effect major dents uh, in the media coverage of the Israel-Palestine conflict and enable the broad public to get a pretty clear picture of what's happening. You know, earlier on this morning's show, we were talking to Dalar Derek. She is a Kurdish activist. She is in the Rojava area. And she was talking, uh, she wrote an article at Al Jazeera about the glamorization of the Kurdish woman fighter and how that distracts the media from the politics of the of Kurdistan, of, of the group that is in Rojava uh, fighting against the Islamic State. And that just, when you were uh, just talking about um, the media and how it covers, uh, you know, um, 
what's going on in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And I started thinking, if, I wonder if our media is distracted by the security aspect rather than focusing on the uh, on that conflict's political aims, but all conflict's uh, political aims. Do you think media in general focuses on military rather than political aims? Oh, I think it all depends. You can't make generalizations like that. Um, it depends on <clears throat> which conflict you're looking at. Uh, in conflicts where the U.S. wants to pretend it's in the right or may in fact even be in the right, um, there is a focus on the political issues uh, at stake, not just on the military side. Uh, if you look at places like, uh, right now, places like Ukraine or Syria or elsewhere, or Syria, no, I would say Syria doesn't fit in that category, but in places like uh, Ukraine, there is a focus on uh, the political dimension uh, to what's happening. Um, so I don't think the problem is a focus on military versus political, the military versus the political dimension. Uh, the problem is that the political dimension is uh, grossly distorted and uh, in many cases factually misrepresented. Uh, if you read any article in the Times, any mention, of uh, Hamas is always followed by a subordinate clause, Hamas, comma, which wants to destroy Israel, uh, even though Hamas has made a thousand statements uh, saying that it's willing to accept a state on the 1967 border. Uh, that's always just um, whited out. I think this is one of the the least understood things about the Israeli-Palestinian violence. You write, Palestinians are under neither legal nor moral obligation to desist from using armed force against Israel. Legal nor moral obligation. For those who may not know this, Norman, why is there no legal or moral obligation for the Palestinians to stop using armed force against Israel? Consensus under the current consensus under international law is <laughs> that people under occupation have the right to use armed force uh, in order to end the occupation. Uh, and contrarywise, uh, occupying an occupying force does not have the right to use uh, violence or arms in order to repress the struggle for uh, self determination. Uh, and national liberation. Uh, that's the law. Uh, and I don't think there's really all that much controversy about it. You write, although Israel had uh, always coveted Gaza, its stubborn resistance eventually caused the occupier to sour on the Strip in April 2004. Prime Minister Ariel Sharon announced that Israel would disengage from Gaza, and by September 2005, both Israeli troops and Jewish settlers had been pulled out. It would relieve international pressure on Israel and consequently freeze the political process, a a close advisor to Sharon explained, laying out the rationale behind the disengagement. Quote, And when you freeze that process, you prevent the establishment of a Palestinian state. Harvard political scientist Sarah Roy observed that with the disengagement from Gaza, the Sharon government was clearly seeking to preclude any return to political negotiations while preserving and deepening its hold on Palestine. Israel subsequently uh, declared that it was no longer the occupying power in Gaza. So why didn't Israel keep that status quo? Why didn't they keep that front? Disengage, still control, claim you're not occupying, get better press, and do nothing to the change the situation and move on. That's exactly what it did do. It uh, sought to consolidate the occupation of the West Bank, and it uh, turned the screws on Gaza 
but maintained the, the pretense that uh, Gaza was now no longer under occupation. So this is something that they still hold this opinion. I thought that this would have changed from April 2004, September no. 2005, no, seeing as how there have been so many invasions. The official Israeli opinion is that Gaza is no longer under occupation. It coined the term that Gaza is a uh, either an enemy or a hostile entity. I can't refer, recall the exact term it used. Uh, but no, that's exactly what it did do. Well, that's amazing that anybody would still believe that. How has Hamas, this is another aspect I think that people don't understand. Well, I'm not sure if I can continue, sir, because it's one twenty-five, and I think you said it would be a half hour. Oh, okay, sure. I got one last question for you then, Norman. Uh, we've been speaking with Norman Finkelstein. He is the author of Method and Madness, the hidden story of Israel's assaults on Gaza. Norman teaches at Sakarya University Center for Middle Eastern Studies in Turkey. So my last question for you is, uh, I don't want to ask the Hamas question. That's kind of a silly one. Um, how much do you think the reason we have things like the Islamic State or that Iran has a style of government the U.S. does not support, how much of that is because of the American style of democracy failed the people of the Middle East? Um, I'm not sure how much the American style of democracy failed the people of the Middle East. First of all, uh, the U.S. style of democracy is no great shakes to begin with. Uh, uh, I would say it's marginally an improvement over what goes on in places like uh, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and other U.S. allies, probably better. Um, but that's never been imported into that region. Quite the contrary, the U.S. has always been very firm, steadfast, and forthright in its support of the Arab dictatorships. I think the very last thing they would want is um, a democracy, even a very limited one, such as we have in the United States, uh, take root in the Middle East, um, because were it to take root, all of the U.S. allies would be quickly and expeditiously removed from power, and popular governments responsive, more or less responsive to the population, uh, would uh, then take their place, which the U.S. doesn't want. Uh, the U.S. doesn't want governments responsive to their populations. The U.S. wants governments responsive to the United States to be in power. Norman, I really appreciate you being back on our show. Uh, good luck with your book, Method and Madness, The Hidden Story of Israel's Assaults on Gaza, and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. If you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Become a member to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams weekly. Hmm, look at that. Our weekly podcast streams weekly. That's a great idea. And this podcast shortly after the same place, patreon.com slash thisishell. This week on Patreon... It's what we do here on This Is Hell and why what we do can be so problematic and a disaster for our bottom line. Every show we do, we take risks that nobody would ever take if they wanted to have financial success as a broadcaster or podcaster. We run the risk of being seen as un-American, unpatriotic, partisan Democrats, Bernie bros, commies, clandestine 
Trump backers, anti-Christian, even anti-Semitic supporters of terrorism were apologists for war crimes, if not simply satanic because of the name of the show. However, we can take that risk because we are not beholden to any institution or corporation, and the stations that carry us allow us the freedom to discuss whatever the hell we want. But it's risky business, and we explain why we take these risks on this week's Patreon. Also on Patreon last week, we played an interview from 15 years ago about how Israelis and Palestinians were working together to raise awareness of the crimes and abuses taking place in the occupied territories, aka Palestine, or what's left of it. This week, we're going back 20 years, five years earlier, and playing our May 10th, 2003 interview with Dr. Elaine Hagopian, Professor Emeritus and former chair of the sociology department at Simmons College, who at the time was working with Visions of Peace with Justice in Israel and Palestine. That organization described itself at the time as an association of Jews in greater Boston working to promote a lasting peace between Israelis and Palestinians based on mutual respect, justice, and equality. Which is weird because we are now being told anyone who wants a ceasefire, or dare we say peace in the region, is clearly anti-Semitic. Apparently, from our 27 years of covering the region, there are a lot of Jewish Israelis who must be anti-Semitic because they want peace. But the only way you can hear all of that is by becoming a Patreon patron at patreon.com slash thisishell. If you do become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon, not only do you get a special code word giving you a discount on all of our merchandise that you can find right now at thisishell.com when you click on support, but you also get access to over 400 past Patreon podcasts. That's like three whole years of additional This Is Hell, with each and every one featuring a monologue by me and a classic interview that currently is not available anywhere else online. That's patreon.com slash thisishell. So, we were supposed to have Nick Terse on today's show. Unfortunately, he had to reschedule because the story has been further embargoed. He will be on the show on Monday, November 13th. This is when I would be asking Will, who are our guests on next week's This Is Hell, but... We haven't heard back from any of the people we sent requests to. However, we do have a programming note. Next week, we will be on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday with Patreon Podcast on Friday. There will be no Monday show as we do not have a producer who is available on Monday. Also, Seb Vooper will be sharing another past inside the present, but I believe it's going to be on a Thursday of next week. We'll have This Week in Rotten History from Rinaldo Magaldi, which I believe is going to be on Tuesday. And Jeff Dorchin, as always, will deliver a moment of truth, and he always does that on Wednesdays. A huge thank you to this week's producers, Dan Kugler and Will Ippen. Thanks to Sebastian, Rinaldo, and Jeff. And to Richard Norwood, Alexander Jerry, Theron Humiston, Dan Hill, and Pete Valavanis, just because. Talk to you tomorrow, Friday, on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell when I will be revealing the risks we take by doing a show like This Is Hell. And we'll play a 20-year-old conversation about Jewish Americans working for peace between Israel and Palestine. And get this, they didn't lose their jobs for doing so. Go figure. This Is Hell office hours are a meet and greet that's really a drink and think. Happen every Wednesday beginning around 6 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood, and we hope to see you there. Again, vote for This Is Hell at, in the Chicago Reader Best of 2023 Readers Poll at chicagoreader.com slash best under the City Life category, where you can vote for This Is Hell as best podcast and me, Chuck Mertz, as best radio DJ. 
That's chicagoreader.com slash best. Then go to City Life and vote for This Is Hella's Best Podcast. And me, your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming podcast host Chuck Mertz as best radio G- DJ. While you are there, please show some love for Carrie's Lounge. The bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now, Vote for Carrie's under Food and Drink for Best Beer Garden and under Music and Nightlife for Best Neighborhood Bar and Best Dive Bar. That's chicagoreader.com. Vote under the category City Life for This Is Hell is Best Podcast and me, Chuck Mertz, for Best Radio DJ. And vote for Carrie's Lounge under Food and Drink for Best Beer Garden and under the Music and Nightlife category for Best Neighborhood Bar and Best Dive Bar. Voting is only open until November 7th, so it's less than a week away before the deadline. So vote early, vote often for This Is Hell, Chuck Mertz, and Carrie's Lounge at chicagoreader.com best. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've talked to you about on this week's set of shows, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's. Stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.